tis the season for the summer blockbuster. How many of you guys love summer blockbuster movies? I was trying to, yeah, I, rem- I was trying to remember back to the very first summer blockbuster movie I ever saw in the theater. And um, this will date me a little bit, but it was Empire Strikes Back. And I remember vividly, Dad, uh, my dad took me and my, my brother, younger brother, we, and we went to the Winchester Twin Theater, which no longer exists. That's how old I am. But uh, we went and watched it and was just totally blown away. And I, I won't spoil it for you. If you haven't seen it yet, it's Star Wars, so just get with the program, okay, for, for crying out loud. But uh, it was amazing. It was a huge reveal. And, uh, and these summer blockbusters have been going on really ever since. And I think Jaws was maybe the first one uh, going all the way back. But it's happening still today. You love to see these stories. Last year, it was uh, Top Gun. This year, it's Mission Impossible. Basically, anything that Tom Cruise has done uh, in the last, whatever, 20 years. But We love these stories because every one of them, we go and watch them because we want to see an epic struggle take place and for some version of redemption, glory, win victory to begin to take place at the end. It's something that's actually kind of woven into the fabric. I mean, it's the, you can have a bunch of different kinds of stories, but the main crux of all of these movies are the same thing. There is incredible struggle to overcome against a, what feels like at times insurmountable odds to be able to experience something meaningful and glorious and good at the end. Any Real story always has those elements to it. And the truth is, we love that because that's our lives. That's our lives. Maybe it doesn't look like Hollywood, but every one of us can identify that real, meaningful, spiritual journeys always encounter hardship and temptation along the way to glory. They just do. Every story has that. Your own story, you've experienced that in some way, shape, or form. We love the overblown version of it in Hollywood, but we're all living it out. Walking through life, a life of genuine faith is not one that will always lead immediately towards greener pastures. How many of you know you have to actually walk through some deserts and some valleys? We've all been there. It's going to lead us a real and authentic faith, walking with our Creator is absolutely going to lead us into places and times of wrestle where you and I must hold on to God tighter than we ever have before. It's actually a part of the plan. And I think at times we're inclined to feel shame for when we find ourselves walking through struggle or even temptation. That when you're walking through a hardship or a valley or a dark time, places of brokenness inside of you, what we want to do or what we often seek to do is to hide under toxic shame to get away feeling like, well, if I really had faith, then everything would be working out. If I had some genuine faith, I wouldn't be walking through this hardship. 
that isn't actually true. In fact, I think the entire narrative of the very Bible that you hold in your hands over and over and over and over and over again is the description of men and women who go through incredible difficulty, hardship, and then discover that in the hardship, they have a safe place to cling to. They have a safe place to run to. They have a God who's actually leading them through it. And so in that way, both the challenges that we face and the temptations that come our ways in many ways are the sovereign grace of God to feel our need for him. Now, I'm just going to be honest with you. Well, I would never, I don't ever pray for and ask for challenges or temptations. In fact, we pray the opposite way. But if you asked me if I could have a life where I never had any problems and never experienced any challenge or hardship or difficulty or temptation, I never had any of that, but was clueless to my need for God because of the ease of my life, or I could experience hardship and challenge, but it would drive me deeper into a deep need for the God of the universe. If you ask me to choose between those two, I'm choosing a life of pain so that I would know that there is a redeemer and a restorer, and I would cling to him for forever. It's a grace. We don't ask for it. We don't pray for it. You don't have to. We live in a very, very broken world. Those things have come and they will come. Trials and temptations, they're coming. It's not a doomsday voice. This is the voice of reality. We've all experienced it. The invitation is to be a people who hold on to the Lord. And that's where we come in Psalm 4. Beautiful song written by an incredibly rich and flawed human being. But what made him so fascinating, what made King David or David a man after God's own heart is what we get to see right here in the psalm. Psalm Psalm 4, verse 1. I'm reading out of the NIV. I normally do ESV, but we're using this translation this morning just because it felt like it was a little bit more authentic to what the... Uh, original language meant. It says, answer me when I call to you. Oh, my righteous God, give me relief from my distress. There it is. I need relief from my distress. Be merciful to me and hear my prayer. There it is. Real, raw, authentic. I'm in distress and I need mercy. I need something that I can't produce or create for myself. And I'm asking you to hear my prayers. I don't know if you've ever had to pray something like that. I don't know if you've ever been praying at times and you just are going like, God, are you there? Why do you pray? Hear my prayers. Because you're just desperate for the only one who can fix what's broken to come and incline his ear to you.
That's the life we're meant to lead. Hear this. This is the life we're meant to lead. The one that brings the full authentic thing. The one where we become hungry and desperate for the ear of the Lord over our lives. For him to look on us and see us and hear us through the trial, through the challenge, through the temptation. And to be able to say, give me relief, Lord. Answer, come, be near to me. That is a real relationship, right? This is not a this super sanctimonious these and thous type of conversation that's going on here. This is a real man who is coming to a real God with his real distress and saying, God, would you hear me and be with me? And it's real because that's the same life that our Lord faced. You want to think about that for a minute. This kind of life that I'm describing, it's the same one that the Son of God faced when he was here on this earth. Jesus didn't come here to live a different life from us. He came to live the same life as us, but show us the way through it. To live on our behalf through it in a way that you and I never could, but to still face the exact same life you and I did. I guarantee you, he didn't have any different reality than we had. He came home with a smashed thumb when he was trying to chisel rock or uh, splinters in his fingers from a day's work. He ate and drank. He bathed and went to the bathroom, right? Jesus didn't float around on a cloud while the rest of us hovered underneath. He was very real and he lived a very real life and he faced all of the same challenges that you and I face. But what he did is he laid out a way for us, a path. That if you're a follower of Jesus, there is actually a path that's going to be contrary to the way of the world. In fact, You and I are going to be called to be very different. If you're here longing to just fit in with the way the rest of the world works, I promise you this faith will not work for you. But if you were looking for something rich and meaningful and different, whether you're in distress or in glorious goodness, whether you're in victory or in shadows, There is a narrow way that Jesus came to show and to reveal. I think the world that we're living in, honestly, is uh, it's becoming, I think, imperative to understand there's a narrow way. There's a different way to walk. There's a different way to exist. And Jesus actually said it this way in, in Matthew chapter 7. He goes, enter by the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life and those who find it are few. Now let me just say it again. The Jesus says the Gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. 
It's outlining that when we come into this life, we're going to experience hardship. The hardship doesn't mean you got a problem. The hardship means you're on a path that's different than everyone else. There's a narrow way. And I think, honestly, most times it's preached on, I think it's in terms, most times this, this particular text or passage, Jesus' quote here is mostly seen as a caution. As in, you know, be careful not to give yourself over to a life of selfish indulgence like the rest of the world. But I think there is something so much deeper. While that is true, there's something deeper going on here. Because I think he's reaching down inside to say, there's actually a way that leads to life. He's not looking at you and I going, you have to... You have to have no life in order to follow me. He's actually asking, I want you to trade broken life for fullness of life. Trade it out. Make the exchange. That there's a way through challenges and temptations to discover that he will answer you no matter what. He will answer. He'll meet you. And so Jesus walked the narrow road. In fact, He's going to tell us, I think it's in John 10. He says, I am the gate. I'm the doorway. So that when temptation came to him, he didn't cower under the weight of it. He stood up in the face of it. And when hardship and challenge came to him, he didn't turn his back on it but he turned and reached up to his father. He went to his safe place in pain. Our Lord lived the exact same life you and I are living. He just did it through the narrow road. He was the narrow road. He is the narrow gate. And he came to give us that life. A way through. A way through the challenge and a way through the temptation, not cowering in shame, but facing it and coming to the Father. And that's what our psalmist David is doing so well here, is that this is the thing that made him a man after God's own heart, right? We know that David cannot be a man after God's own heart because of his perfect track record. Can it be? It can't be that. This is one of the more charismatically flawed people you'll ever read about. Make fantastic stories. In fact, I think there are many stories written in the version or ilk of his own story. What what is it that made David a man after God's own heart? He's writing this song here, crying out in distress. What about this makes him a man after God's own heart? Certainly can't be his ability to do it perfect. It wasn't that. It's his rock-solid dedication to reaching out to God when he was ecstatic and reaching out to God when he was in the deep cave. You want to know what makes you a man or a woman after God's own heart? It has absolutely nothing to do with your amazing or even abysmal track record. What it has to do with is do you have a real thriving call? Something deep inside of you that says, I love my God on the mountaintop and I love and treasure my God in the valley. 
There isn't a circumstance that changes the way that I come to my God. This is what defines you forever. This can be, this is the defining thing about you. Because this is what will be true when God does make all the hardship and does make all the temptation go away. Listen, the day is coming. There is no more hardship. There is no more temptation. It's going away. That day is coming. And the only thing that will matter is a heart that is like beating, flowing, craving, treasuring, hungering the presence for the presence of God. You'll be in it. And if that is true one day, then it's true now. If that is true one day, then it's now. It's true now. This is the most important thing about you. It's the most important thing about me. How did David know that God wanted him to reach out to him in distress and not just victory? Because David is discovering over and over the grand, huge, amazingly beautiful life that he had was never about him. Can I just say something to all of us in here, myself included? This glorious, beautiful life that you have is not and never has been about you. And man, (laughs) what freedom there is. Can I just, how amazingly, gloriously free is that truth when this life doesn't have to be about you? Man, you can make decisions on a whole different scale in a whole different way. You can do marriage and have children and do jobs in a completely different way. When we get away from the fact that this glorious, beautiful life was never about us, it was always about the experience of the grandeur of God. That's how David could come to God in good times and in hard times. Because he knew his ultimate joy would never come from his circumstances. It would always come from full-scale joy in God, period. That's what he says here, verse 2. How long, O men, will you turn my glory into shame? How long will you love delusions and seek false gods? Selah. Saying you spit on glory for shame. You hear that? Love delusions. You love delusions and you seek false gods. Now, if there's a sentence more plainly, that more plainly expresses what this moment in time is, this is it. There's not, there's not one that explains it better. Love delusions and seek false and broken things. This is what our world is today. And David knows the delusions are empty and false gods will never measure up, period. Joy in God is the answer to the cry of the human soul. I'm gonna say it again. 
joy in God and his beauty is the answer to the cry of the human soul. Finding it and experiencing it, nothing else will do. And for good measure, when David writes that in the song, he just brings a moment of pause. He says, Selah, pause. Actually, no one really knows for sure what this word is, but from all the context, it's happened 74 times in the scripture. When this word Selah comes forward, it's this moment to pause for a minute, to breathe in, to take in what's being said and what's being spoken. It's that intentional movement to stop and to think and to ponder and let the truth come over to let something wash over you. Now, uh, I was a child of the 80s. I was literally four to the age of 14 all through the 80s. Grand time, amazing time. And the 80s gave us one spectacular thing um, that I'm really grateful for, and that is the guitar solo, just right there in the middle of the song, right? Guitar solo, hair bands playing amazing, cool, awesome sounding music, and then all of a sudden you get the guitar solo and it's going to take you somewhere, all right? And I'm grateful for that. Uh, What is the guitar solo about? It's the vibe of the song. It's to take in, to think about. It's all this creativity and all this uh, musicianship and then what's going on with this song, what it's telling you. And most of them are really, really horrible songs. But either way, they were really great to just like take in and think about what's going on here and to be amazed by the creativity of what's happening and to feel even, if you will, the power of the song. That's the point of it. That's what's happening right here. That's what the Selah is. Maybe God gave that to us in the 80s, saying, I know what you want in your soul. Chew on the power of this song, but not not just the hairbands, okay? There's something here that no uh, hairband is ever going to hit in this moment because he's actually asking us to pause and to just reflect for a minute because the song's asking you, and me. What are the delusions you love? And what are the false things that you seek after? You're so hungry for joy. You're hungry and you're desperate for it. But where are you finding, trying to find it? That's a lie. That's what delusion is, a lie. What lie do you believe? What false thing are you running after to try to answer this thing, this cry in you for fullness? That the whole world treasures delusions. The whole world's running after it. And false idols and so the song asks us to pause for a minute and ask the question. So let's do that for a moment. I'm not going to ask for anybody to come up and play music, I'm gonna, but I want to take 30 seconds. If you'll do this with me, would you close your eyes? We're in the middle of a message. We don't normally do this. In fact, I'm pretty sure if you go into communication school, this is a bad idea. 
but I just want to take 30 seconds. If you would, close your eyes. And would you just lovingly come to the author of life? And would you just say, Lord, what false thing in me do I love? Is there a lie or a delusion? A false idol? I want to give it to you. Just ask him the question. I'm going to give you 20 seconds. Ask him the question. And would you just offer it to him? we give you the false thing. We give you the delusion. We give you the lie so that it has no grip on our lives anymore. In Jesus' name. I love what he says, this, this song where it has this moment. We get a chance to have a breath, to breathe. And in Psalm 4, he says, listen, Know that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself and the Lord will hear when I call to him. How brazen is that? Just to say it out loud. The Lord hears when I call. I know he delights in me. The Lord hears you and he goes on to say, in your anger, do not sin. When you are on your beds, search your hearts and be silent. Selah, meaning it's time to get angry about some things. Come on, church. It's time to get passionate. He's, talking about, he's not talking about sinful, broken, toxic anger. He's talking about what's churning in you to pull you into more full, real life. In your anger, don't sin. Be passionate. Be fully alive. Don't settle for chewing on the things that everyone else is chewing on. There's something more for you. There's something more for me. There's something more for us. There is joy in this life that comes from one place. I want real joy in a real relationship with a real God, with real deep gladness that is really unbreakable. That's what we all want. Every one of us hungering for that. So God, give us passion and help move us more and more away from that which is inferior to the thing that God has to give to us if we'll just ask. He's ready to listen. The Lord will listen. He'll hear your distress. He'll hear your hunger. He'll hear your hurt. He'll, he'll, he'll hear your hope, your sadness, whatever it is. Bring it in full authenticity. This is offer right sacrifices and trust in the Lord. Verse 6, many are asking, who can show us any good? Who? 
Who can show us any good? He says, let the light of your face shine upon us, O Lord. Who? Who, church? Who has good for you? Who has good for you? No one and nothing apart from the Lord of hosts. He has good for you. And here is how he finishes. I love how he finishes here because this is it. Verse seven, you have filled my heart with greater joy than when their grain and new wine abound. There it is. Greater joy. Greater joy. Isn't that what you and I want? Greater joy. David knew where it came from just as sure as he is begging for relief from his own distress, he knows that joy is not just in the relief, it's in the one who gives it. That's what he's saying. There's something more than temporal treasure. There was an eternal treasure that doesn't ever fade. And that's how Moses saw it as he left Egypt behind. He's got the call of God on his life. You're familiar with the story of Moses the plans of God, the purposes of God. He's got all these things. And in Hebrews chapter 11, it's recounting Moses' story. And it says in verse 25, he, Moses, chose to be mistreated along with all the people of God rather than enjoy the pleasures of sin for a short time. He regarded disgrace for the sake of Christ as of greater value than the treasures of Egypt because he was looking ahead to his reward. There it is. There it is. Greater joy. Not just someday, though we have that, but here and now. And willing to just say no to the thing that's inferior. No to the thing that's a delusion. No to the thing that's false. The narrow road just to say, no, there is a better way not to do it like everyone else, but to do it as you've called me to. You, God, are my reward. You have filled my heart. And I'm so grateful. Listen, let's all be thankful for the grain and the wine. Can we be thankful for the gifts of God that he brings to us? That's not to be belittled when God gives us blessing in our lives and we have homes over our heads and places to go and friends and family and all of the beautiful gifts that we get in this life. Every one of them are such a sweet gift. Let's be grateful for all the great things that we have. But hear this, they can't be true. Trusted in. I thank God for grain and wine. It is not the answer to the hope of our hearts. It is the giver. He's the treasure. We aren't supposed to be holier than thou, despising blessings that God bestows, whether they're financial or physical or spiritual or political or whatever. But we have to guard against believing the marketing lie that more grain and more wine and increased gifts and your neighbor's car or house or that iPhone or that vacation, that will be the thing that will satisfy you. It won't. 
It never has. It never will. Anyone who's ever gained more just needed more. You ever had the most amazing meal of your life? You ever had the most amazing meal of your life? Imagine having it over and over and over again. It's awesome for about three times. And by the fourth time, you're like, just give me a bowl of Cheerios for crying out loud. Something different, right? Come on. Why is that? Why is that? There ain't a steak or a thing or a dollar that can actually satisfy your craving. It can't. And God just opening his arms wide just to say, you can have all of me that you want but you will have to go through the narrow road. You'll have to say no to the thing that's inferior at times or it'll just consume you. It'll keep distracting you. And you'll find that this life isn't tasting the way that you had hoped that it would. That's the way the Lord wants for you and him. He wants you to taste and see that the Lord is good. That's what... The psalmist would say in Psalm 16, there is the fullness of joy in your presence. At your right hand, O God, are pleasures forevermore. God isn't asking you and I to repent of having hunger and desire for joy and pleasure in this life. What he's saying is there is one place to come and get it. So come on. Come to me. Let your relationship, that's why our prayers, we're about to close out here. Luke, you can come up. That's my prayer for you. That's my prayer for me is that somehow in some way we would find ourselves hungering and treasuring him more than the gifts. That we'd find our heart being somehow delighted in him and all we have to do is to be willing even though it's very difficult to open up our hands and say god what are the delusions and the false things that i tre- find myself treasuring what are the lies that keep me from experiencing you and i lay them down again i want to lay them down again well pastor what if i what if there's a lie or a delusion or a false thing or an idol I keep going over to over and over and over again and I, I can't, can't seem to stop running to it? You, well, one, welcome to the club. You're human. And number two, lay it down again, brother or sister, and set your face on the Son of God today and ask Him to do more than you could ever think, expect, or imagine in you. But don't stop. It's a narrow road. It's hard. That's actually Jesus' own words. If you want fullness, you have fullness. But it's a narrow road. And few will find it. And I just pray that we're a church of people who find it. We find it. We experience it. We have it in him. You guys stand. He's the treasure. We're just going to take these last couple of minutes and let him be the treasure.
Would you do this? Would you just take a moment to confess? Confess just means to agree with what the Lord says is true. So Lord, here, I wanna, we want to lay down the things that we tend to hold on to to find hope and joy. We thank you. Just Let's start by just saying, that God, we thank you for our gifts. Thank him now. Lord, I thank you. I thank you for my wife. I thank you for my children. I thank you for a roof over my head and meals at the dinner table. I thank you for all of it. Such sweet gifts. But Lord, there's only one place that can truly satisfy. So we lay down now anything that you tend to seek to find your hope and joy in. Whatever it is, would you just offer it to the Lord? It says, offer to the Lord beautiful sacrifices and to trust him. This is what we do now. Lord, you get it all. We offer our lives. You have all of our hopes and dreams. We thank you, God, and we name these things. We lay them down. And we trust you we honor you for the fullness of life that you give and grant to us. We thank you. And now would you just say, Lord, would you give me grace to hunger for you and your presence above all things? Your greatness, your beauty, your majesty, your forgiveness, your holiness, your purity, your kindness, your mercy. I want it all. We want it all, Lord. Help us treasure you, Lord. We thank you. We love you. Lead us faithfully. I'm going to close with a benediction. Just a covering over us. I love it. It's actually the same language we use, that the light of the Lord would be upon us. May the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you. His face give you peace. Lord, we ask these things because first and foremost, it's your delight to reveal yourself to us. But two, it is the answer to the cry of our soul for joy. We pray these things in your name, Jesus. Amen. Amen. Blessings, guys. Thank you. We love you. We'll see you next week.